It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 379 for February 9th, 2014. This week, the bat went through some tough times with version 5, but version 6 restores its position as a leader. You might imagine how surprised I was when I found more than 500 unexpected files on my computer. The latest trick by fraudsters seems to be fake coupons. And in short circuits, changes planned for broadband internet in schools, Yahoo tries to recover from another hacker attack, and rumors of a new high-end Nexus tablet. Around 1997, and yes, that was a long time ago. Way back then, I discovered version 1.0 of The Bat. The publisher, Rit Labs in Moldova, styles it with an exclamation point at the end, The Bat! Well, back then I considered it to be an interesting program, but not yet quite ready for mass distribution. A few years later, in 2000, I began recommending it, and I have continued to recommend The Bat enthusiastically since then, except for a time from about mid-2011 through the end of 2013. Well, The Bat is back. In the early days, there were lots of email programs, some free, some commercial. How many do you remember? Alpine, Elm, Mulberry, Mutt, Calypso, Sea Monkey, Squirrel Mail, Fox Mail, Inky, iScribe, WordPerfect Mail, IBM Notes, Inscribe, Microsoft Outlook, Novell, Groupwise, Eureka, Forte Agent, Gemini, Poco Mail, The Bat, Pegasus, CC Mail, Claris Emailer, Courier, Cyberjack, Eudora, Hula, Microsoft Entourage, Outlook Express, Pine, and Pop Mail. And that's just scratching the surface. There were lots more. Today, the list is a lot smaller. And yet, the bat remains the most powerful email application available, even if it's not always the most user-friendly. The bat has always had a relatively strong following in Europe, much less so in North America. Given the advantages this application brings to users, I've never really understood that. From the beginning, the software engineers at RIT Labs have focused on security and highly customizable mail handling. No other program matches the mail organization capabilities the bat had back in 2000, much less what the program can do today. The time during which I recommended the bat with reservations coincided with versions 5.0 and 5.1. Although most of the features still worked well, Creating new messages and replying to messages became a bit of a problem. The message templates, or what Outlook would call stationary, failed to maintain the proper typeface. That's a small point, perhaps, but annoying nonetheless, particularly when you have to change the typeface with every message. Well, version 6 resolves that problem, and it adds features that make it the one email application that I can recommend without reservation. What's new, you may ask? Well, first and foremost, security is even better than before. At a time when email continues to be the single most common vector for malware, security is more important than it's ever been. 
The bat provides improved protection against malware because it continues to use its own internal HTML viewer. Any graphics or other components that have been embedded in the message will be displayed only when the user permits them to be displayed. Although encryption methods are still so complex that most average users won't invest the time needed to master them, the BAT does allow messages to be encrypted if the user takes the time to read through the documentation and perform the steps necessary to implement one of the features. The BAT makes it possible for users to sign messages with self-issued certificates now instead of relying on certificates from third parties such as Komodo, Thwaite, or VeriSign. The bat's able to connect to multiple servers simultaneously. That's a significant advantage for people who have more than one account. And several new features provide improved usability. More filter functions in the sorting office, for example, so that messages can be sorted automatically to specific folders marked, exported, or printed without user intervention. A quick reply option allows users to send a fast reply without the need to open the message in a separate window. If a message requires a simple answer such as yes or see you then, just type that brief response in the panel right below the message and click the send button. Looking to the future, the BAT now understands Unicode. Unlike the current ASCII standard, Unicode can represent tens of thousands of characters that are used by most of the written languages on the planet. This feature may be only of minor interest to those in the United States, but it's an important consideration for much of the rest of the world. And the developers are working on a 64-bit version of the program, which currently is available to beta testers only. It has not yet been released publicly. RIT Labs says that the 64-bit version of the BAT will be able to work with a Microsoft Exchange server if the 64-bit version of Outlook is installed. Except for that, the developers list no other advantages for the 64-bit version. In 1997... A VGA monitor, which had a resolution of 1024 by 768, remember those? Well, they were considered high resolution. Today, it's not uncommon for people to have monitors that are nearly quadruple that resolution. Some are even higher. The bat has been modified to be more legible on these high DPI monitors. Fourteen years ago, I said the built-in documentation was lacking and quoted one of the developers, and I'll quote him now, Programmers rarely write complete documentation because they feel the operation of some functions is obvious and because they'd rather write code to improve the program than write documentation describing the program. Well, sometime between then and now, they have done a lot of work on the documentation. It is far better now, and users should be able to figure out the answers to their questions with the help file. One thing is certain about the bat, though. If there's something you want the program to do, it probably can. But it is up to you to figure out how. Most email applications allow users to create signatures that are attached to each message. And many, such as Outlook, allow you to create stationery. But the bat makes it possible to create an entire message template, not just for each email account, but for each folder within the account. So if you subscribe to a discussion list, for example, and have the bat sort messages into a specific folder, you might have a generic template for most of your messages, but a completely different template for messages that go to members of that list. Additionally, a built-in macro language allows users to set non-standard headers within the messages, and then to use those headers to control what happens to the message when it's sent. And that is just barely scratching the surface of what you can do with the bat's macros. 
For users who specify different servers for inbound and outbound messages, the BAT offers an easy method for selecting which servers should be used and when. This is a feature that anyone who uses a portable computer will find very useful. In addition to settings that apply to a specific email account or just a single folder within the account, there are, of course, also some application-wide settings. For example, one panel provides selections for the language and date format that the user prefers. I've told the BAT to ignore the Windows regional settings and use the language I've specified in the BAT's setup. I use a custom date format, and when the BAT displays messages from the current day, it shows me the time the message was received, not just the date. The bottom line for the BAT, and I'm happy it's back here, five cats... The bat is still the champion for power users. It's not for everybody, I suppose, although it could be. The basic installation and configuration are easy enough that if you want just a plain email application, the bat will do it. But it's the unquestioned standout for those who want a secure email application that has built-in features needed to handle even complex automated tasks. The developers seem to operate on the principle that good enough never is. And they continue to make the bat more of a powerhouse with each subsequent version. Additional details are available on the bat website. You'll find a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And because this program is a shareware application, you can download it and use it for a month without cost or obligation. Let's call this next section a cautionary tale. Occasionally, I run a Malwarebytes scan. When I ran a scan this week, I found 10 questionable files on the notebook computer. That did not surprise me. I was surprised, though, when one file turned up on the desktop computer, and I was even more surprised when it led me to a hidden directory with more than 500 files. I had installed the video player Divix on the notebook computer, so I wasn't too surprised to find that the conduit search tool I wrote about last September had been downloaded, even though I had explicitly told the Divix installer that I did not want it. The conduit application hadn't been installed, but the installer files had been downloaded. I still consider Divix to be unacceptable for this reason, even though conduit isn't malware in the typical meaning of that term. Malwarebytes quickly and easily disposed of those 10 files on the notebook, and I didn't expect it to find any problems on the desktop, but there was one. The file it didn't like was called srkbe.exe, and it was located in a directory called khsrb in my user directory. And that's an odd location for a file to be placed, so I thought I'd take a look at it before I allowed Malwarebytes to delete it. When I navigated to the directory with my name, there was no KHSRB directory visible. Directories can easily be hidden, so I tried unhiding it. No luck. That means it's a system directory. Well, that's easy enough to fix, too. The attrib command, attrib-h-s-khsrb, did the trick. The dash H argument removes the hidden attribute, dash S removes the system attribute. Now the directory was visible, and I thought I'd take care of it pretty easily with RD KHSRB. But 
I got a message. The directory is not empty. Okay, then. Delete khsrb slash star dot star. No files found. Hmm. So I navigated to the khsrb directory and issued a command to make all of the files visible. A trib dash h dash s dash r star dot star. The H and S arguments work the same as they do for directories, and I added dash R to remove the read-only attribute just in case it had also been set. Then I listed the files in the directory. What I didn't expect was a list of 518 files. You'll see the list on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Most of the files were just a few bytes long, and most of the ones I checked contained only a number. But there was a Visual Basic script and the script called one of the other files in the directory. I presume that when used together, these files would have combined those 500-plus number files to accomplish something nasty. Well, the files are no longer present. Once I rendered them visible, I could easily delete them. And I did. So what was this? From the research I conducted, it seems to be a relatively new exploit, and possibly not even a particularly dangerous one. Clam Antivirus says it's possibly an unwanted application. While not necessarily malicious, the scanned file presents certain characteristics which, depending on the user policies and environment, may or may not represent a threat. So it's listed as suspicious. Well, dangerous or not, I certainly didn't want it on the computer. I didn't put it there. I have no idea what did put it there. And it's gone. The main point, though, is that this was a very stealthy application. Because it consisted of a bunch of seemingly harmless text files, it was able to infiltrate the system and be planted in a location where it might have done some real harm, if I hadn't noticed it, or, more accurately, if Malwarebytes hadn't noticed it. I've said many times that it is the user's responsibility to maintain security, and there's no way I can blame the presence of this malware on a system failure. It was cleverly designed, and it didn't raise any warnings, but clearly, somewhere, sometime, I let my guard down. Subsequent scans have shown no long-lasting effects. And if you're just listening to the podcast, do take a moment to visit the website, www.techbiter.com, and look at that long list of files. The number of fraudulent messages seems to be increasing daily. Fortunately, my anti-spam measures are sufficient to keep the crap off my computer, except when I decide to let some of them through to see what the thieves of the world are doing. In recent weeks, there's been a flood of phony coupons. Here's an example. Amazon Rewards Centers USA. Your $100 Amazon gift card is now ready for you. All I have to do is follow the link. Just about everybody seems to buy something, at least occasionally, from Amazon, so you might reasonably conclude that Amazon is rewarding your loyalty by sending you some bonus bucks. Amazon even has a rewards program, but it's not called Amazon Rewards Centers. So if you follow the link, what happens? 
I don't have the slightest idea. But these generally don't try to plant malware on users' computers. Instead, you'll probably be presented with a registration form, and that should immediately cause some alarms to sound. If these guys are sending you a gift card, don't you think they already know who you are, where you live, what your phone number is, and how to contact you? What's the point? Well, the point is they're going to ask you for your phone number, your name, your email address. So they don't have that information already. Provide that information and you will find yourself on the receiving end of even more spam and those lovely robocalls that we all like so much. And here's one. Use your voucher to enjoy a delicious meal at your local Wendy's. Wendy's classic menu items are calling your name. Please claim your voucher. Click here. This limited availability. Wendy's has been remodeling its stores. It's expanded its menu, so it seems reasonable that they might send out some coupons for free food. But this is just another scam to harvest your phone number, your email, and other information. Sometimes these sites actually do provide a coupon that you can print. It might even look legitimate. Try to redeem it, though, and you'll find it's worthless. And these high-tech fraudsters don't always use email. Maybe they use your phone. Your phone rings. Once. What do you do? Well, if you have a cell phone, you probably see a number on the display. You probably know not to answer calls from numbers that are blocked, but this number is displayed. It's right there, so it must be okay. Should you call the number back to see what the mystery caller wanted? Emphatically, no. The Better Business Bureau even has a name for this. The crooked ploy is called the One Ring Scam. The Better Business Bureau says the scam relies on consumers calling back missed calls. What happens next is you're connected to a paid international adult entertainment service, a chat line, or some other premium service that just happens to be located outside the United States. You might be hit with a $20 international call fee, or the line may charge you several dollars a minute. The fee can be large, but most of the crooks are smart enough to keep the fees relatively low because they count on most people not closely examining their phone statements. And even those who do look might be inclined just to assume that a small charge is probably something legitimate that they just forgot about. According to the Better Business Bureau, the calls usually originate outside the United States. Some of the locations that have been reported include area code 268, Antigua and Barbuda, 809, that's the Dominican Republic, 876, Jamaica, 285, the British Virgin Islands, and 473, Granada. These countries all share a country code with the United States, one. So the number looks like they're standard long-distance calls, not international calls. But because the calls go to locations outside the United States, organizations such as the Federal Trade Commission have no jurisdiction. The solution is really simple. If you don't recognize the calling number, don't call back. And if you do review your phone statements for unexpected charges, speak up as soon as you see one. The earlier you identify and report the fraud, says the Better Business Bureau, the better your chances of having some or all of the charges removed.
In short circuits, Digital Learning Day was this week, and the head of the Federal Communications Commission says his agency plans to modify taxes that are used to provide money that pays for high-speed Internet service in schools. Maybe the very existence of a learning day explains why the position of the United States among intelligent nations seems to be slipping. Many countries devote more than a single day to learning. All right, that was a joke. Or, well, maybe not, really. FCC Chairman Tom Wheeler says the agency will consider increasing the taxes paid by phone companies and, of course, ultimately by consumers when the phone companies simply pass the taxes on. Currently, the FCC collects a little less than $2.5 billion per year and uses about half of that for what's called the E-Rate Program. Some of the money is used to pay for dial-up Internet services in some areas, and a bit even pays for pagers. Who uses pagers these days? Wheeler was quoted as saying that the agency has found ways to make the program more efficient and to improve, and I quote, the way funds are deployed. In English, he said the FCC has an idea how he could spend money better. He was speaking at the Library of Congress. On the subject of additional taxes, Wheeler said, should it be necessary to increase the permanent funding levels for the E-rate program, we will do what is appropriate. In English, that would mean rates are going up. The FCC plans to increase its spending to provide high-speed Internet connections in schools and libraries to achieve the stated goal of the Obama administration that would give nearly all students access to high-speed Internet connections within the next five years. The FCC can increase spending because it has collected money in recent years and the money has not been spent. E-rate is paid for for money collected as part of the Universal Service Fund. In addition to broadband internet connections in schools and libraries, the fund is used to pay for service in rural areas. An approximately 15% tax is levied on some aspects of wired and wireless phone service. It's not 15% on the total bill, so most of us pay only a few dollars a month to that universal service fund. In 2012, hackers broke into servers at an organization that's associated with Yahoo and made off with credentials for about 400,000 users. Now it's happened again, and once again the attack didn't target Yahoo's servers, but those of some other company. Attackers have been trying to gain access to Yahoo accounts by using credentials obtained by breaking into the other company's servers. What other company? Yahoo doesn't know. How many accounts might have been affected? No idea. If nothing else, this attack once again illustrates why usernames and passwords that you set up for one account should never be used for any other account. Yahoo has already reset the passwords for all accounts that they believe were affected. Earlier this year, crooks managed to serve malware via advertisements that were served on Yahoo's site. In that case, the malware looked specifically for bitcoins. Be careful out there.
Sources in Taiwan say that a new high-end Nexus tablet will show up on store shelves later this year, probably by fall. The rumors say that HTC will work with Google to create the next version of a premium Nexus tablet. You want more information, of course. Well, so does everybody else, and none of the companies involved are willing to say anything on the record, or off the record for that matter. HTC and Google worked together a few years ago to create the Nexus One, a smartphone, but it's Asus that makes the 7-inch and 10-inch Nexus tablets. The company stumbled with its 7-inch Flyer and 10-inch Jetstream tablets, and it's not in a particularly strong financial position right now. And that raises some questions about why Google would want either to replace Asus or create competition for Asus. So, we'll keep watching the tea leaves and see if anything surfaces. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.